Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. I know I told y'all that there was 75% left in this book, and we was all like, oh my god, no! One winter got her face sliced with a dirty-ass bottle, and people was gonna call her Bubbles and shit, and Simone had gotten her revenge and all that kind of stuff, but guess what? Nope! There is not 75% left. There is one chapter left in this book. And then there's like a gang of book discussion questions. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read this because that's what I, I'm here to do. I'm, I'm going to read this right here. I ain't going to like it, but I'm going to read this. I'm going to probably like it, though. I'm going to like it a lot because, you know, it's one of my it, it's still one of my favorite books. Even if as I get older, I realize that this book wasn't written for young me or old me. I don't know who the fuck this book was written for. It's written for them niggas who think that women eating cauliflower makes their period stop. Shit like that, I guess. I, I don't know. It's not made for me. Um, it's not gutter enough on one hand for Ratchet Book Club, really. On the other hand, it's not intelligent enough. Like, there's so much just witchy-washy shit going on in this book. And... As much as when I was reading Old Thought Next Door, I got mad at um, Vernita having a change of heart because it was so sudden and so fake. At least she had a change of heart. Winter never changed. She had no growth. Like she busted out of her mom's big coochie, a brat, and now she getting locked up, a brat. And to be honest... I don't care what she says. She never left her hood. Like for all the fighting she did to never leave her hood when she was a kid, she really never left her hood. Because she never left behind the ideals of what had her in that hood. She never left behind the ideals of what made her popular in that hood. Even when all signs are pointing to you need to give this shit up. I think that's what irritates me the most. Is that I want growth. I want change. I want improvement. Something. And I, I gotta I gotta be honest with you. A lot of these books. Shit. This is a ratchet book club. I'm already knowing. A lot of these books is going to leave me very disappointed. As far as resolution. So. Let's get to the first one like that. I mean at least. You know. Old Thought Next Door. 
had that bang out ending where Alice was like, yeah, bitch, I fucked your man and all that kind of shit. I mean, that was out of nowhere too, but still, and the whole way it came up was dramatic as fuck. Like it was completely unnecessary, but it was still something. <sighs> so remember in the last chapter, winter had gotten an abortion and then, um, bullets had sex with her that very same night. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not putting anything on winter for that one. Like bullet. I don't know. That's weird. That's a weird call. Cause she didn't want to tell him that she just had a, had an abortion. And as a result, when he was making sexual advances towards her, she was scared. Like, the thing about Bullet, he was clearly abusive without the opportunity to really ever be abusive. Like, it never progressed that far in this book to where he would strike her, but she knew he would strike her. Like, he told her, don't ever lie to me. So, she ended up having sex with him when she had just gotten her abortion because she was scared of him, which is horrible. There's no... It's just, I guess it's just me. I'm, I'm old. I'm old. But you can't have sex with somebody who's scared of you. There is no passion in, in fear. That's not how, there's no crying in baseball. There's no. But I guess, you know, in this book, niggas just want the power. Oh, well. They went back to the hood. Bullet said he was going to give her a gun. He gave her a gun. Then he was like, give me the gun so then I could take it over to my nigga so we can go on this ride. Also, he bought a dog to keep her locked in his bedroom. Two dogs. Rottweilers. Hungry ones. Didn't feed them all day, so if she walked out the room, that was going to tear her up and eat her. That was fucked up. And then after that, he came back and he walked his dogs and then he walked Winter. Seriously, he was like, I bought you food. And she was good with that. Also, her dad's been in Rikers the entire time. That never got fleshed out. Bullet line to her. I hope they flesh all this out. You know what? Fuck it. Chapter 20. 2,555 days later. Pause, goddammit. Stop. 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 Stop right now. Stop. I don't give a fuck. You know what? I know I just started. I know. I know. Let me see. Right here. 2,550 days divided by goddamn 365 equals what? Six years and nine months. I hate that shit. Nigga, I know you think you hard because you count the days, but if I ask you how old your baby is and you tell me that your baby is fucking 36 months, bitch, he's three years old. Cut that shit out. Got me looking demoralized because I can't count how old your kid is. Tell me your kid is fucking 100 and what? Let's see. And I'm doing the math in my head. Fuck that shit. Just tell me the numbers. Your kid is fucking 15. All right. Your kid is fucking 15. That's how this works. Your kid is not fucking 180 months old. Son of a bitch. He's 15. He can't even count that shit. You know who probably uh, said their kid was that many months? 
that um, woman from Game of Thrones who was still breastfeeding her son. That's who. By the way, Game of Thrones will never be on this show. Because fuck the whole way that that TV show turned out. I said it. Fucking Arya losing the whole faceless man storyline like it never fucking happened. Fuck that shit. So, anyways. Six years and nine months later. I checked the calendar on my wall. God damn it. Fucking shit. Okay, now I gotta do more math. 2,555 days later. I had checked the calendar on my wall. I had 2,920 days left. I'm doing the math, y'all. So, that equals 5,475. When you divide that by 365 days, that's too much goddamn work. She got 15 years. Don't tell me she's going to start sounding like that nigga Damon Wayans and then live in color when that nigga wanted to sound smart in prison. I can't even do this right now. Like, fuck it. Halfway through my sentence, I checked the calendar on my wall. I had half my fucking sentence left to serve on a mandatory 15-year prison sentence. God damn it. But this particular day was special. What made this... I gotta stop reading with the sarcastic voice. <clears throat> okay. Chapter 20. Fucking fuck. Fucking shit. Fucking... What the fuck? I get mad every time I look at it. This is some bullshit. Just the air come out. The words didn't even. I'm just demoralized by this shit. Okay. <clears throat> Pardon me while I fall into character. Chapter twenty. <sighs> that is such a fucked up way to start a chapter. Chapter twenty. Twenty five hundred and fifty five days later. I checked the calendar on my wall. I had 2,920 days left to serve on a mandatory 15-year sentence. But this particular day was special. What made this day special was simply that it would be different than the rest. In 15 minutes, I'll be walking out of this cell, down the corridor, and out the door to attend my mother's funeral. She had died suddenly. Whatever that means, because she was dying all along. Message! Some type of blood clot to the brain. And since mothers are so important, I was about to enjoy the only legitimate method of leaving this institution before a prisoner's time is served. Of course, I'll be trained at the feet and at the wrists. I'll be escorted around like a preschooler. I'll be returned to the cell within hours. Then the routine will resume. But at the age of 25, in the 21st century, a small trip to the graveyard was about as much excitement as I was going to get. Because I was going to get a few hours outside this wall, I was like a superstar. Everybody in here wanted me to be sure to tell them everything and everybody I saw outside as soon as I returned. Other than people's relatives, there was no real way for us to know what was going on outside. And even relatives are hard to come by. Who really wants to take an almost eight hour trek out to this joint, which damn near sits in Canada? In my seven years served... I never received one visit. Who the fuck is going to visit you, Winter? Who? Your daddy's in Rikers. 
Your mama's a crackhead. You ain't talked about your sister not near one nutter. Who gonna visit you? Bullet? That nigga's stupid, but he ain't that stupid, yo. The fuck? I had to work several hustles to keep my commissary in livable condition. Then, of course, there were always the suckers who would be shook down if things got too bleak. Fighting didn't mean nothing to me now. There was no nervousness or nothing. I just did whatever was necessary. There ain't no special clothes or fashion in here. When I first came, I tried to make myself stand out the way I always did. But after a while, you figure, what the fuck for? You can't get no dick. I don't want no pussy. There's no one to impress here except for these broke down broads. Every now and then, I do hair for cigarettes or stamps or cookies. Most of the time, I keep my own hair braided. It's so long that bitches get jealous. I have to braid it, then roll it up and tuck the ends under just not to have extra beef. But me, Natalie, Zakia, Shantae, and a bunch of Brooklyn girls got a crew up in here. We got a little name for ourselves. Even Simone's trying to be down with us for our own protection. She finally stopped blaming me for the death of her daughter. That shit must have happened at the point where she fell chasing her outside the house of success. I'm 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 assuming. Wow. I mean, it probably said it. I just She finally stopped blaming me for the death of her daughter. Or at least she puts up a good front. But that's how it goes in here. There's all kinds of strange alliances. Everybody got drug-related charges stemming from their own little situations. But we wasn't nothing but the girlfriends and niggas moving weight. Sometimes when we be playing cards and listening to the radio, it's almost like we at home. I got enough family and friends on the inside. That's why I don't get no visits. Everybody's already here. As far as mail goes, I get letters from Santiago. That's it. We just always going to be close like that. I still got the letters from that wild day in Brooklyn. That day plays over and over in my head. I calculated about 263 what ifs. What if I had done this? What if I had done that? What really blew my mind was finally reading Santiago's letters while I was in the holding cell the night of my arrest. He admitted killing two dudes in prison. Both of them was my mother's brothers, who used to work for him. But he broke it down so I could understand it. He just had a justifiable hatred for weak men. Said there's nothing worse than a snitch. He told me he knew he was never coming home. And he was right. It turned out he got two consecutive life sentences with no chance of parole. The crazy shit was that he gave me Dulce Tristamente's phone number in those letters. He told me to call her because he didn't want any more money wasted on his trial. He instructed her that I would be calling. She was to meet me and hand over $50,000. There was only one condition. I had to get my mother and place her in a rehab. He even gave me the name of the place. That's what he wanted me not to take care of. After collecting the money, I had to promise to take care of my mom after she came out of the rehab. 
But I wasn't supposed to mention a Dolce what I was going to do with the cash. I called that bitch Dolce Collect from the jailhouse. Once she found out I was incarcerated, she changed her phone number and never passed off the money. That hoe was living lovely. If she was supposed to give me 50000 imagine how much she stashed for herself. But that's neither here nor there. I don't even think of getting out. I take one day at a time the eight years I have left. I cross out each day as I survive it. I know I'm not guaranteed to see the next day or the outside ever again. It's not like I miss anybody other than daddy anyway. Two guards came to get me. Santiago, let's go. Keep it moving. I walked on the right side of the corridor, on the inside of the white line the way we were trained to do. They took me into a room I had been in hundreds of times before. I stripped naked. Naked wasn't nothing to me. I had done seen thousands of breasts and hundreds of asses by this time. It was almost the same as seeing somebody fully clothed. In the beginning, I would try and cover myself up. But surprise searches in the middle of the night would have sissy chicks standing side by side, butt naked, and then squatting for a rectal inspection. We are naked in the wallless shower, naked in the bing, naked, naked, naked. It meant nothing. Dressed in a jail jumpsuit and an army jacket, with an officer in front of me and an officer in back of me, I proceeded down the hallway and out a series of automated doors. My prison number was checked and rechecked at each checkpoint as if they didn't already know who I was. Hell, I'm here every day. Once outside the building, I was placed in a van with bars on the windows and driven across the facility field where snipers and officers were stationed every couple of yards, 24 hours a day. When we passed the last checkpoint, my way of breathing changed. It might be hard to believe, but the air in prison is different. There's like 1,000 people sucking on a little piece of fresh air until it turns stale. Then all you suck in is recycled oxygen and bad breath. In the van, I could feel the breeze. I could even smell the trees, the sap, and the flowers in the spring air as we drove down the road, headed to the airport. I stuck my face up against the window bars. The sun in my face was a luxury. Because of the way my cell was situated in the building, I rarely got any sunlight. The airplane offered more magazine selections than we were entitled to inside. The officers, who pretty much know my style, were relaxed. They had no reason not to be. I was chained to my airplane seat. I peeped people trying to glance over at me. It wasn't easy for them to get a good view because I was seated in the middle chair, in between two guards. I looked right back at them, though. I was checking out shoes, watches, jewelry, dresses, just so I could tell the girls on the inside what was up. When food time came, I got filled up on the aroma alone. Three choices of food were offered. That's two more choices than I'm used to having. My nose was so keen now, I knew what they were serving before the stewardess read off the selections. When we got to the city, I was placed in a prison vehicle. New York street sounds brought back memories of so many things. Mostly memories of freedom. Being able to go to the store or the movies. Getting fucked in a parked car by the river or in the grass or on the back stairs. My eyes checked the cars, the updated series and models. I noticed new hairdos, new buildings that weren't there before. 
As I rode in the back of one of those prison vehicles, the car with the metal gate separating the prisoners from the officers, I saw people looking. It seemed like they were wondering what I did. I wanted to tell them nothing. I didn't do shit. I'm doing 15 years for having a bad attitude. That's what it boils down to. Sure. I rented a car that was being used to transport guns and cocaine. But they wasn't my drugs. They wasn't my guns. But since I was sitting in the car I rented with the stuff concealed inside the teddy bears in the back seat, they considered me guilty. I'm a conspirator for renting the apartment me and Bullet lived in. I'm a conspirator because guns discovered had bodies on them. People I didn't kill. Some of them I didn't even know. Now you can tell me how can I be involved in the conspiracy when nobody involved in the conspiracy wasn't convicted of nothing. They wanted Bullet, but I wouldn't help him. The name is Santiago. We don't snitch. Besides, even if I was a rat, it wouldn't matter. That nigga Bullet had it all figured out. His name wasn't on nothing. He wasn't caught doing nothing. Joey the doorman disappeared before the cops could get to him. There was nobody to testify against him about shit. When Natalie came up here one year after me for just riding in the car with a nigga with contraband, she told me to deal with Bullet. Now he has a bootleg tape business. He got all the rappers shook, be stealing their music and selling on the streets before the record companies could. He's got a legit record store that he sells the tapes out of, and he's paid out the ass. The graveyard was located in Queens. When we pulled up, all I could see was the backs of about four men. As we came into closer range, I saw the three of the men were armed and wearing bulletproof vests. The two officers with me greeted the three officers with Santiago, my father, who I had not laid eyes in in eight years. As soon as he turned to greet me, the tears came gushing out of my eyes after so many years with no tears at all. I couldn't stop him from falling. Santiago gestured slightly like he wanted to hug me, but his hands were chained, and so were mine. What's up, baby girl? He asked in a low tone. There was no privacy. Any emotion shared here was a group thing. We were being watched like a motion picture. Hey, Daddy. I whispered, admiring how handsome he still looked, his tall frame still sturdy, filled out masculine. You're beautiful, he said, looking into my face in a concentrated way. I cried more because I knew how hideous the scar on my face was. I had stopped bothering with the mirror about five years ago. Even with the scar, he added, as if he could read my thoughts. You're still the prettiest girl in the world. The old white priest cleared his throat. All six of us, me, Daddy, the guards, stepped up to the open casket to take one last look at Mama we would ever have. When Santiago looked in, he broke down. He broke down so bad, he fell to his knees. Who is that? Who is that in the box? That is not my wife. The guards prodded him to stand back up. Both Daddy and me tried to collect ourselves. Seconds later, some more people wandered over to where we were. We didn't know them. We assumed they were looking for another plot. As two of the guards moved to inquire, words were exchanged and they allowed them to pass on our way. 
For the first time in many years, I became self-conscious. I felt ugly. I wanted to fix myself. I wanted to rip off these clothes and tear out these braids and comb my hair or something. It was midnight. He was tall, black, and regal. He looked more amazing than I remember him being. Instantly, I felt jealous of the women with him. It was a piece of me that was dead, that was somehow coming to life again. My eyes locked in on their face for an immediate comparison. It's funny. The girls' faces were familiar, but I couldn't place them. Then an alarm went off within me. Lexi and Mercedes, the twins, my sisters. They had to be at least 15 years old now. They were so soft and delicate and different. Their eyes were different. Midnight approached Santiago at first. He hugged him, which the guards allowed. Then he presented Lexi and Mercedes, like they were strangers in an initial meeting. They talked to Daddy in a formal way, not like daughters. They spoke to me with sympathy and distance in their voices. Everything that needed to be said was not being said. Midnight did most of the talking. Like old times, he reported to Santiago on the status of things. It was about Santiago's daughters. I turned away from him. I didn't want Midnight looking at me. Just as the priest started going through the motions, a big black 600 series Mercedes Benz with black tinted windows pulled up on the pavement. It had been moving at a high speed, so it stopped with an abrupt jerk, alarming the guards who had already assumed the shooting position. They called out for the person to identify himself. But the music coming from the vehicle was so loud, I'm sure the people inside couldn't hear anything. As the door opened, a model type of girl, straight out of the pages of a high fashion magazine, stepped out of the car. Dressed in a white Versace slinky dress, odd color for a funeral, and white Dolce & Gabbana leather stilettos. She was obviously paid out the ass. I still couldn't see her face behind the sunglasses. Stepping carefully on the new soft spring grass, she came right over to me. Sup, Winter? She smiled wide and pulled off her sunglasses. It was Portia, my sister. She came alone, pushing the whip it would take the U.S. president's salary to pay for. She hugged me. She kissed Daddy. She waved her Mercedes, Lexi, Midnight, and the two women with them. She stepped up and looked in my mother's coffin for all of three seconds. She stepped back, grabbed my arm, and leaned inward to talk privately with me. The guard signaled for her to back off. Damn, she screamed on the guard. Can't I talk to my own sis without you being all up in my ass? So they let her talk. I couldn't believe how she chumped him. I wanted to come and check on you, girl. She said, chomping on some bubblegum. But she was just too far away. Tell me what you need. Whatever it is, I can get it for you. Whose fucking whip is that? I asked, amazed. Busters? She responded. I raised my eyebrows like, who that? It's a long story, she said, waving her hand in the air like it wasn't nothing. What's up with Lexi and Mercedes? I asked her, 
almost at a whisper. <laughs> Midnight adopted them. They are religious and whatnot. They be wanting to tell somebody how to live their own motherfucking life. That's his wife right there. She ain't all that. I look better than she do. Who's the other girl? I asked. She's a sister. They live out in Maryland. Midnight on a barber shop. Can you believe it? She said, chuckling. So what do you do? Where do you live now? I asked her cautiously. Uh, I do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. We stay over there by Central Park in Manhattan, she said casually. We who? I asked. Me and Buster. She said it like I should have already known. Oh. Now I took a good look at Portia. She was perfect. Her hair was perfect. Her legs were perfect. Her clothes were perfect. But I wanted to warn her about certain things in life. Usually I'm not at a loss for words. But I didn't feel good enough to tell her what I really thought. I knew what she would think. Winter, you just saying that because you in jail. Winter, you just saying that because you old. Winter, you just saying that because you ugly. Winter, you just saying that because you jealous. So instead of saying what I learned, what was on the tip of my tongue, I said nothing at all. Hell, I'm not into meddling in other people's business, and I definitely don't be making those speeches. Fuck it. She'll learn for herself. That's just the way it is. Midnight opened the goddamn barbershop. That bald-headed fucker opened a barbershop? Like, out of all the shit she dreamed up for this nigga, this nigga opened up a barbershop? I bet he don't even cut hair. I bet he just rent out booths. Which is fine. I mean, that's a good business idea. Nigga bald as shit. Barbershop. And adopted the daughter's or adopted the sisters, and just left Winter in the Lux. And how the fuck did her mom have this letter that told her the Winter is supposed to get $50,000? And they never said, I mean, she's on the crack rock. Did he mail it to her aunt's house? Like, how the fuck? What? Where them letters go? What kind? I need a book written on where the fuck them letters travel from. I figure that shit is like the adventures of the motherfucking Milo and Otis. Like, how the fuck did those letters get into her crackhead mama's fingers? And it just so happens that right when she reads them, everything falls into place. Like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be set up lovely with 50000 You know what Winter would have done with $50,000? She would have bought 50 outfits. She ain't never learned how to manage money. She ain't even learn how to flip it. Didn't no nigga she fucked with want to teach her none of the things about the drug game. At all. Talking about I, 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 I wanted to tell Portia, but she gonna say I'm ugly and I'm old. Motherfucker, you were acting like she was dead literally two fucking years. Well, let me be honest. 730 days ago. Motherfucking math. Got me thinking and shit. It's too late for this goddamn shit. She'll learn for herself. What the fuck she gonna learn? You don't know what her situation is. You don't know what life she living. Her and Buster might be happy as fuck. Buster might be an executive. The nigga's name is Buster. 
Nigga, do you know what that means out here in Cali? You can't get no respect if your goddamn name is Buster. Fucking Buster, look at you, you Buster-ass Mark. Fuck you, Buster. Nigga's name is Buster. B-U-S-T-E-R. The only Buster I respect is that nigga from Tiny Toon Adventures. Fucking Buster Bunny. Nigga's name is Buster, driving a Benz. Nigga, that nigga's an ad exec. Portia just came out stunting because that's what Portia do. She stunts. And honestly, I don't know what the fuck her life was like because I'm goddamn sure and well not going to read that fucking book. But how the fuck she find her way to Buster in the first place? Wasn't she adopted? Wasn't she in the foster system? Something? Weren't they fighting when her mom had to leave? Why the fuck did Midnight leave her behind? Did she say she didn't want to go? There's no backstory. Also, the fact that Bullet has a record company and he's selling bootleg albums out the record company that he gets before the record labels can put out the album is hilarious to me. Like, that's a lockup. That's a rig up right there. Oh, no. Santiago crying over his wife at the uh, fucking funeral. Like, this ain't my wife. You goddamn right. Dolce's your wife. Dolce Tristamente and your fucking what? At this point in time, fucking nine-year-old son? I see they weren't at the funeral. Oh, no. It wasn't for it wasn't for you. My bad. My bad. He killed two of her brothers. I would have done drugs, too. Nigga, to get revenge, you fucking murdered two of my brothers. So that's like on the one hand, but on the other hand. And also, did they shoot her? Or were they just snitching? Because they worked for him, but he never really speculated. If they were snitching and he couldn't stand a weak man, so they must have been snitching. Then who the fuck shot her mama? I don't know. Let's get to these special reader's guide questions. I don't give a fuck top 10 questions. The top 10 questions were, why'd you choose to focus on a write about drugs in your first novel? I don't give a fuck. Is the coldest winter ever a true story? Nigga, what? She fucking wrote these questions. I know her. I know this. Niggas don't write this shit. How you write the book so authentically when you said that since your early childhood, you separated yourself from people who sold or used drugs? Yes, great question. Shut the fuck up. You wrote this shit. If I had my wife write a question when I was doing a fucking interview and she said... You know, the question, I'd be like, that's a great question, too. You know why I'd be like, that's a great question? Because I wrote the fucking question. Also, the fact that, oh, my God, the answer to that fucking question. Oh, my God. We gonna count. Okay, so number three is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. 13, 13 and a half fucking pages long is that answer. Uh, bitch. I changed my mind. I don't even want to know. I'm asleep. 
You ain't going to give me no sermon because I asked a question that you told me to ask. That's some bullshit. You did not tell me the full part of this story. You didn't tell me what was going to happen when I asked that question. If you had told me what was going to happen when I asked that question, I wouldn't have asked. I would have muttered and you wouldn't know what I said and had to move to the next fucking person. Why are you writing books with shit? Good fucking shit. What'd you say? I said, I'm going through a tunnel. That's, I can't ask it again. Why are you writing books with fucking shit? Authentic. Fucking 13 page answer. The fuck out of my face. Aaliyah only wrote four fucking pages. God damn. I don't even think these are questions. These are literally her answering shit. I don't want her to answer shit. And that is the last fucking 14 pages. And then she does character analysis. Ooh. And she lies like a motherfucker. Ooh, that's interesting. Okay, okay. I'd read that too, but this shit is fucking deep. We're going to have to hold out on this until the uh, book club, the discussion this weekend. But she has analysis on everybody, which makes sense because she wrote the goddamn book. There are no actual book club questions in this book. So I got a book club question. She's got a fucking... Character analysis on Miss Santiago. You didn't even give her a goddamn name. She is a symbol of incompletion. She represents all the women who stopped learning and growing in this life. The ones who turned to beautiful Barbie dolls. Hmm. All right. This book is over character list like you really did all this shit I mean thanks gave me a fucking index of character names including defining who the fuck the young guns are the up and coming drug game they are very young and ruthless their feud with Santiago for control over drug territory is financed by the police I think we're done here I think. Unless y'all want me to answer an easy-ass question with 13 fucking pages of bullshit. I'm not reading that. Don't even ask. You see the link on the fucking show notes? If you want to read all her answers to these questions, you can go ahead and buy this shit. But you know what? Fuck her. Fuck this. Fuck that. And the nigga's name was Buster. Who the fuck named somebody Buster? God damn it. 916-633-1537. Wretched and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Hit me. I'll holler back. This weekend we'll do the discussion. For the next two days of the next uh, series, I will be reading a clean book. Because one of my niggas died. And he wrote one of the greatest books of all time. So the next book I'll be reading for the Ratchet Book Club is none other than Norton Juster's The Phantom Tollbooth. Hold on to your hats, bitches. Y'all be good. Peace.
the intro and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by that kid Garan, and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.